Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, practice, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor in mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. If you were here last week, we raised a question about that first verse that we read just now. And how it fits in the flow of Romans, this verse that says this, he will render to each one according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works. What is Paul saying there in that verse? How does it fit with the flow of the rest of the book of Romans? One of the things that um, causes me to attempt when I'm here in this pulpit to preach expositorily is uh, because it makes you deal with verses like that. Um, I prefer to go through entire books. It doesn't mean that you can't do expository preaching without doing that. Expository preaching means you just get the text and you pull out the meaning from that text that the author intended. That's what expository preaching is. It can be... on a topic, as long as you take the text that applies to that topic and preach what it says, what the, what the text says, not what your topic says necessarily, but the text. But the benefit of going through books is um, it causes you to deal with difficult texts. You can't, you can't avoid them. You've got you to gotta hit them. You've got to come through them. You've got to explain them in the context of the rest of the book. And so as we have spent months, really, in Romans chapter 1, and we pulled out, as I said last week, the theme of Romans, the whole book of Romans in chapter 1, and that is in verse 1, 16 and 17, it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, that God provides a righteousness outside of us that he gives to us. We just sang a song, talked about the robes of Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin, he gives us that righteousness that he accomplished as ours, to be seen as ours. That's the theme of Romans. That's what Paul was heralding. In fact, he repeats it. One of the things we're in right now is kind of a long section that's talking about the fact that everybody is guilty before God. He starts out with the Gentiles, but he doesn't leave the Jews out. And basically, he says the Gentiles are without excuse and the Jews are without excuse, which encompasses everybody. It means everybody is without excuse. And he hammers that theme, and we're going to be in that still for a while in the latter part of, or all of chapter 2 and then part of chapter 3. It, it talks about that, being without excuse. It started in chapter 1. All men are without excuse. But then as he comes to the end of that, and we'll get there eventually, he comes in verse 21 of chapter 3, and he restates, really, the theme of the book. He comes back and he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. 
the righteousness that talked about in chapter 1. Not the righteousness, that I said last week, by which God is righteous. I mean, that's not good news if that's all you have, that God is perfectly righteous and holy. Holy, 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 as we learned in my Sunday school class this morning. That's not, that is not news that Paul would have heralded because that's bad news because of our sin. But a different righteousness, a righteousness that he has accomplished outside of us that he gives us, he provides a way for us to be seen as righteous by the righteousness he accomplished. He gives us, if you will, his perfections that he accomplished. And he resays it here. But now a righteousness from God has been manifested after he spends a long time talking about everybody being guilty. He reiterates the theme. And then you go down to verse 23 of chapter 3 and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All men are guilty. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We'll get to that text. It's a wonderful text. I'm looking forward, actually, to getting to that text as we wade through these heavy verses in chapter 2 and part of chapter 3. We'll get back to it. But how do you take those two themes, first in chapter 1 and then in chapter 3, and then you take a text like the one we have for this morning that begins, he will render to each one according to his works. Has Paul lost his mind, as we said last week? Did Paul get mixed up and have a lapse for a little bit? If you have a high view of Scripture, you believe in the sovereignty of God and overseeing these words, you can't go there. So you have to say, there must be a different way to understand this text than if that's all you had. If all you had was the words, he will render to each one according to his works, didn't have anything else, but because you have other things, other things to put with it, you, you have a rule of interpreting Scripture, which is you take the unclear text here that seems to be out of sync with the rest, and you go to the clear text, the, the two that I gave you in chapter 1 and chapter 3, and you ask yourself, is there a different way, is there a different way to, to see what Paul is writing here? Is there a different way to look at it? The, the natural way to look at it, if all you had was that, he will render to each one according to his works. But there must be another way. Paul must mean something else here to stay consistent in his thought. And I think he does. And I left you with that last week. I, I painted that picture a bit, said we'll talk about it, because I think he unpacks it in the rest of that text, what he really means there, and it helps us greatly. But these are some things just to remember from last week. The, the title that I gave you is Works. It's in the bulletin this morning, again, part two, works, dash, reality, not quantity. In other words, I think what he's talking about here is there's a reality of a transformed life here, reality of something flowing out of that, of true repentance here, but not the quantity. The other way to say that is there's evidence, there's evidence. He will render each one according to his works or his evidence but it is not the grounds of our justification. In other words, those works are the evidence that one has come to repentance, true repentance, true godly repentance, which we've been talking about, but it is not, those works are not the grounds of justification. The evidence of justification, that it's happened, 
but not the grounds of that justification. And those are incredibly important words to keep separately and understand the difference in those two things. Paul, I think here, is talking about evidence of one who has come to true godly repentance, that has had a change of mind, a change of heart, a new direction, and fruit that flows out of that. A different outcome because of that. Remember, again, I reentered it last week again, but when we were talking about true godly repentance, I said there's a process. It starts with kind of rethinking things, and then it comes to a change of mind about some things and heart, and then ultimately it, it is reflected in what comes out of that in how we live. But I said to you, be careful. Be careful. Don't start with number three. Spend a lot of time in one and two steps because number three um, can fool you. Number three can fool you. You You can misread it and it must always flow out. And these works here must flow out of one and two of true godly repentance in our lives. An example of that, of being careful, would be the thief on the cross. Remember, there were two men, and one man in that moment saw the glory of who was on that cross, and Jesus replied back to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. I think this verse applies to him. He will render to each one according to his works. There will be a sense in which there will be evidence in that man's life in the end. In the end, that true repentance happened in his heart. Now, could we read that? Would we be able to? No, God, but God does. God is all-knowing. We need to be careful when we try to read those things too precisely in other people's lives, whether for good or ill. God is ultimately the one who sees that. But now, what I want to do is I want to go to the rest of this text And I want to look at the two types of people that are described here. Two types of people are described in this text. I think the first set that are described are, in fact, the righteous by faith. Those who have seen the glory of Christ, embraced the glory of Christ, come to true godly repentance and and what the flow of their life is. And the second are those who have not, the impenitent, and the difference in the two. And that's what he describes. Let me, let me look at it again here. We looked at verse 8. It says, He will render to each one according to his works to those who... Now, this is the first group. To by, who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The evidence of works produced from too godly repentance... And and these are the kinds of heart things that begin to happen in those lives. First of all, one who comes to true godly repentance and faith in Christ. They have a change of mind and a change of direction, a change of heart that begins to seek for God's glory. An attitude that changes within them. The text that we often quote here, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God all of a sudden becomes central to them. God's glory. Chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, listen to the text here. This is 
this is a description of that. It says, therefore, in Romans chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. That's, that's what happens when we come to Christ. And that, but it goes on and says, and we rejoice, the outflow of that, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see the flow of what happens in the life of one who comes to true godly repentance? All of a sudden, what didn't mean anything to them becomes central to them. And that is the glory of God. They seek his glory. They seek to know him, to be like him, to be in his presence forever. That's that's the change that happens, the change of mind and thinking and heart that reflects one who, in fact, is a believer who has come to godly repentance, the glory of God. It's no small thing. In Scripture, all through Scripture, you can trace the glory of God. In fact, remember we read the verse in Romans chapter 3.23, for all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. An unbeliever, that's where we live. But when you come to faith, you come to see what Christ has done, the glory of God becomes central to you again. You you don't want to spurn the glory of God. You don't want to step on the glory of God. You want God to be glorious around you and in your life and reflected in you. That whole mindset of change. The second thing it says that they will seek for glory, the glory of God, and honor. What's that about? Honor. Honor. What, what does it mean in a life of a truly repentant person to, to seek honor? That, that seems like it almost puts the focus back on us. But that's not what this text means. It is talking in, in this regard that we become concerned about what God thinks. That we want God to be pleased with what we do and our life. We care about what God thinks. There's a text in in John chapter 5 and verse 44 that really kind of helps us to see this. Jesus is speaking and he says to those around him, how can you believe when you receive glory, honor from one another and do not seek the glory or the honor that comes from the only God? And when it's talking about honor here, it's talking about caring about what God cares about about the idea of pleasing God rather than men. That whole idea that the scripture talks about be pleasers of God rather than pleasers of men. We think first and foremost about what God thinks in regards to us and our lives and how we live our lives. We're we're concerned about that. We're concerned about not um, grieving him and offending him. That, That whole issue of wanting God to be pleased with how we live our lives. It matters to us. An unbeliever, that that isn't a concern to them. And then thirdly, it says they seek for glory, the glory of God, the honor of God, and thirdly, immortality. Immortality. 
Incorruptibility would be another word that could be substituted for that word, for incorruptibility. And, and one of the things that I think gets reflected in one who comes through true godly repentance is that, that we begin to just get weary of sin. We have a, a growing sense of sin. And even our own sin, it doesn't... We, we as believers, we who come to true God to repentance, don't, don't live perfectly. And, and what happens in that life, and we've described it even when we were talking about true God repentance, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a life of lifelong repentance, really, to come to faith in Christ. You, you just continue more and more to be sensitive to sin, sensitive to your own sin. Sensitive to the realization that sin has a bigger hold on you than you even believed it had. And you begin to look into the recesses of your heart in depths and places and begin to look at motives. Begin to look at what makes you tick and why you reacted the way you did and why something rose up in you. And you, you repent of that. You repent continually of the sin that you continue to see and root it out of your life. And, and what you do, I think, as a believer, and you also look at it around you, not, not in a judgmental sense, but you just get weary of a broken world. You get weary of sin. When, when, when something happens in, in, in this life that, uh, that just shows the brokenness of it, you just mourn over that. Scripture says we mourn. Blessed are they that mourn. Mourn over our sin. Mourn over the sin that's broken the world. I shared an illustration with you a number of years ago. Maybe you heard it, but I, I remember a phone call that I got from a family member once, and, and it came to me that there had been a miscommunication in, in, in the family, a miscommunication. And, and I, just, I remember in the midst of that conversation just getting, I, I think, although you have to be careful, it felt as though it was a righteous anger. I just was frustrated. I, and, and I kind of let my voice raise as I was talking to this person, and they, they took it that I was somehow angry at them, and I, I had to stop and say, no, I'm not angry at you. I'm just angry at brokenness. I'm angry at how two people who as much as possible had the right motive and right intent, and as they communicated together, it got twisted to cause hurt feelings when nobody had that intention. And I thought, ah, oh, that's a picture of life, isn't it? It's a picture of the brokenness of our world. And I think as we walk longer with God, we walk in this way of repentance more and more, we just mourn over sin, our own sin, the sin of the world. And I think we come to the place, this issue of immortality. I think part of growing in grace, growing in repentance, understanding true godly repentance is we just get to a place where we long for the day. We long for the day when it's gone when no longer will sin taint things. And one of the things in recent years that I have had somebody else say, it isn't original with me, but just the idea. Can you imagine what it would be like? What it would be like to live in a place where you didn't even have the impulse to sin. It just never even occurs to you to sin. Never even tempts you to sin. Never tempted to, to lash out or whatever. 
No impulse. We, we can't imagine that. That's part of the reason I think the Bible says that we can't comprehend what heaven is like. I think in many ways there's more continuity than discontinuity about heaven. A new heavens and a new earth, I think it will be much more, um, much more understandable and like what we know than what we don't in many ways. I think it's a restoration back to what it was in the very beginning as the heavens and the earth come together. But the part that will not be like it was, that we have no comprehension. We don't know what it was like in the beginning. We don't know what Adam and Eve looked out and said in the beginning it was very, or I mean God looked out in the beginning and said it was very good. And Adam and Eve experienced for a brief period. We have no comprehension of that, what that's like because of the tainting of sin. Because all we have ever known is that impulse to sin. The idea that that possibility is there. Never lived in a world without that impulse. Whether we do it or not, and hopefully the more we walk with Christ, we don't. We fight it, we resist it. But, but one day, one day, we don't even have to resist it anymore. It's just gone. And I think part of what the picture here, he will render to each one according to his works. And then in the first group, those who come to true godly repentance, to those who practice in well-doing, Seek for glory and honor and immortality. That's a picture of true godly repentance. And it will evidence itself in a different way in which we live. There will be works. But again, not as some grounds that we get enough of them so then we appease God. That's already been done by the work of Christ. It's not the grounds of our justification. It's just the evidence. It's the evidence that will be there in the end, however that plays out, the evidence that we, in fact, have come to true godly repentance. So I think that's what it's talking about there. Now, there's another side to that story. It goes in verse 8. He contrasts the two. Now he says, but, but those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That's the contrast. That's the one who does not come to repentance, who does not, as the, as the Scripture admonishes us, as Paul writes in there, that, that uh, God's patience is to bring us to repentance. Those who don't, those who don't, this is a picture, this is the contrast. Look at the contrast. First of all, it says... They're self-seeking. They're self-seeking. Rather than the change that happens when true godly repentance and we substitute for the center ourselves and put God there, that's what happens as we grow in grace, as we come to understand the gospel. God becomes the center. We see that he's the center and we're not. But one of the characteristics of sin is that we think everything revolves around us. The characteristics of sin is everything goes through us. We are the center, self-seeking center. It's about our glory and not God's glory. Interestingly, this is where you have to be careful when you begin to play God in all of this. This is where you have to be really careful because we are so good at keeping ourselves at the center. Sin has such a hold on us that we can put ourselves in the center even 
in religious activity. It can look like it's for God. But at the heart, it's about us. That even our religious activity is about us. About, about getting the honor of men. The praise of men rather than the praise of God. It's so easy. In fact, isn't that what happened? Isn't that what Jesus came against in the Pharisees? They were good at painting things on that as you looked on, you would think and be impressed. But God knew the heart. God knew that they didn't flow from true godly repentance, but they merely were just painting it on. And, and still, self had not been taken out of the center it was still about them, even religious activity. That's why, that's why Jesus says all men are without excuse, Gentiles and Jews, because we're all guilty of doing that, and all must come to repentance. The Gentiles, yes, but so did the Jews. And secondly, it goes on to, to say more. It says they are self-seeking, and they do not obey the truth. They do not obey the truth. It's the idea that they're, they're not really concerned about what God thinks. Concerned about man, man's praise, man's honor, but, but not so concerned about what God thinks. And ultimately, the way that ultimately plays that way out is when it comes to a clash between what God wants and what they want. When it comes to a clash in Scripture where they read clearly what God wants, but it doesn't fit what they want. And because they're still at the center, they're still at the center, they manipulate ways to get what they want. And, and don't obey truth. Don't obey Scripture. In fact, it goes on to say they obey unrighteousness. One who truly has come to godly repentance, there comes a rising appreciation for this book for the things that God reveals to us, for Scripture. And, and it becomes significantly important in our lives. And we don't run over the top of it. We don't, we don't ignore it. We let it be our guide. But for one who doesn't obey the truth, one who has not come to true godly repentance, there's not a love that comes to us about what God has to say. As long as it fits what we want, as long as it fits our agenda, fine. But as soon as it goes against it, as soon as it goes against what we really want, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so they obey unrighteousness. Sin is not a big deal. Sin is not a big deal. Offending God is not a big deal. The glory of God, they don't have an appreciation of that. That's what the impenitent are like. So here we get a contrast, two kinds of fruit. The fruit of true godly repentance and the fruit of the impenitent. One, one produces one kind of work. Another produces another kind of work. One, the scripture talks about, leads to eternal life. The second leads to God's wrath being poured out. One produces good, one produces evil. That's the contrast that we have. And the, and the scripture very plainly says there's two destinies to that. Eternal life, 
or separation from God forever. And then he says this in this text. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and then the Greek. The Jew first. Why the Jew first? Why does he start with the Jew and not the Greek? I mean, we, we looked at some pretty horrendous things about the Greeks, about the Gentiles, about the way that God had given them over. So why here doesn't he say the Gentile first, the, the ones who kept no knowledge of God, and then the ones that had a knowledge of God? The, the interesting thing about that is the reason. The reason that the guilt is deeper, I think, and more, and the Jews are first, is because they had the revelation of God. They had the truth. They had the prophets. They had all of those things. And so in many ways, because they had them and didn't cause them to be led to repentance, their guilt will be even greater. Even greater than the Gentile who didn't have that revelation. That's why he goes to the Jew first. And we think of it as here. We think in our day and age today, whom will the, will the punishment be greater for? Will it not be those who've heard the truth but rejected the truth? That's the point here. That's the emphasis of why the Jew first and then the Greek. It's because those who've had the truth and rejected it will have a greater guilt. It'll all be more than you want, but they will have a greater guilt, a greater responsibility in it all. But then it turns and it says, but the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. What good? Good that merit salvation? No. The good but the fruit that flows out of true godly repentance. The Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. The scripture is clear as we come to a close this morning. The scripture is clear that what he's talking about here in verse 6 is not meriting somehow salvation, is not making works the grounds of our justification, but rather the evidence. The evidence that one, in the context of him talking about repentance and all of this text, the evidence that comes from a life that's been truly transformed will look different in the end when God gives out the rewards and judgment comes For those who have come to true godly repentance and had their hearts changed, the evidence will be, there will be be works of evidence. And God will say, mine, mine. And in many ways, it's a vindication of God. In the end, as that's all meted out and however that works, it will be evidence that they are his. The world and those who witness this will say, yep, they were his. They were his. They were his. And the end of that will be ushering into his kingdom forever. So as you look at texts like that, what should it cause us to do? Don't look to works. Don't look inside yourself and say, do I have enough? Have I accomplished enough to appease God? But look to the one who did take our penalty. Look to the one who did fulfill all righteousness. Look to the one who did, in fact, 
take our sin and provides us a righteousness and, and cling to him and run to him and allow your heart to be transformed and, and grace to flow into your life. Let Christ be the grounds. And as he's the grounds, as you really firmly put your feet on the grounds of Christ, it changes us. It changes our life. And fruit flows from that. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning. We're grateful for your grace. We're grateful, Father, for the the scriptures. And Lord, we're grateful that you're a just God. And that you have promised that all that are in Christ, all that are in Christ are yours. Lord, we're grateful that, that you have given us your word that tells us that, that uh, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created in Christ. Our, our lives have been transformed so that, that good works can flow out of them but not as a basis, as a grounds of our justification, but as evidence that you, in fact, have transformed our hearts. So I pray this morning, Lord, that, uh, that we will look to you to do that more and more, that we will look to Christ and look to all that he's accomplished and be grateful for the righteousness that he provides. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a short song that we want to sing this morning just to remind us of where to look and who's the one who produces that work in us. He works in us to will and do according to his good pleasure. He has created us in Christ to do good works. It's this God. Let's sing about him this morning. Let's stand.
that the promise of your word that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works would make its way out and flow out of our lives. And that you would produce more and more evidence that we are yours as we walk with you. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who realizes there's no evidence of that, the remedy is to run to Christ, repent of sin, come to true godly repentance, and allow you to do a work in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace.